just who the heck do you think you are? You ever ask somebody that? Like maybe not out loud, but maybe in your mind, right? Like let's say you're in the grocery store and you got your young kids in the cart, right? And you're pushing them along and some stranger presumes to give you unsolicited parenting advice. I love that, don't you? Anyone been there, right? And what do you say? Just who the heck do you think you are, right? That question comes to mind sometimes when people try to give us input. It reminds me of a story. I think I told you about two years ago, but it fits really well with this. It's about a younger man who owned a car back in the day, a Model T Ford. And it broke down on the side of the road. Now, he's pretty good with his hands, pretty good mechanic. And he's been able to fix it and get it moving before. But this time, he couldn't get it. And so for like two hours, he's broken down on the side of the road, tinkering with this thing. Eventually, a limousine came along and stopped on the other side of the road. And a guy got out of the back and was just watching him for a while. Young guys kind of ticked, right? Like some old guys just watching me. Stop it, you know? Eventually, the old guy called across the road and said, Hey, did you try this and that? The young guy's like, come on. The guy doesn't even drive a car. He gets driven around. What does he, he's never touched a car. What's he know about it, right? But he's tried everything for two hours. What, why not? I'll give it a shot. Boom, fires right up. And he calls across, how did you know? He said, my name's Henry Ford. I invented that car, right? Just who the heck do you think you are? Sometimes somebody is giving you input and you ought to listen to them because they actually have the authority, the right to speak into that situation. And that's where we are in Luke right now. We just came through chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Jesus gave this huge, amazing sermon. But in that, he said that we should call him Lord that we should build our life on him. Those are audacious claims. He said, do this, don't do that. And we got to ask the question, Jesus, who the heck do you think you are? And Luke is actually going to give us two stories in order to answer that very question of who Jesus is. Now, as we get into that, I'd warn you, last week I only had four verses and we had a full sermon. Now I've got two stories. So we should get busy, all right? So we're going to get into Luke chapter 7, verse 1. And here's the beginning of the first story. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. Now, to give you just a little bit of geographic context, check out this map. If you look in the lower right, you see the zoom out map for context. That's a map of Israel. In the top of that zoom out map, you see a smaller lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. And then there's a river flowing out of that, the River Jordan. It goes down into the Dead Sea, the bigger, longer lake at the bottom right. And that's next to the, uh, the Dead Sea. That's roughly to the west of that's where Jerusalem is. But you can see from the red square, uh, our big map is actually focused in on the north of Israel, a region called Galilee. That's where Jesus did most of his ministry. Now, we, we get from that red box, we look, look at the pullout map then, the big one there. You see two map points I put on there. 
You see the Sea of Galilee, and on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee is a town called Capernaum. That was ministry HQ for Jesus. That's kind of where he centered his ministry. It flowed out of there. And so he's done a bunch of preaching, and now it's RTB. It's return to base. So he's going back to ministry HQ in Capernaum. And as he does, uh, he's kind of entering the town. He is met with some messengers sent from a Roman centurion. Now, a Roman centurion, that's a Roman soldier. Remember, Rome had conquered and was occupying Israel. The centurion would be given the charge to kind of keep the peace over a region. It's because the Roman soldiers were impressive. But to get to a centurion, that's almost like a captain on our rank. Uh, As the name implies, he would be over a hundred men. This was a very good soldier. But not only a good soldier, if you look at our passage, he was also just a good dude. He is a great guy. He cares about his servant who is dying. Now, some would object, well, yeah, because like that's a slave, like that's property. No, 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 no. No, that word where it says highly valued by him, the word valued there means honored or esteemed. Okay? So he honors, he esteems his servants. That's crazy. It's great character, great dude. And so he has heard about Jesus. Hasn't seen him, but heard about him. So he sends people to ask Jesus to come heal, not him, not family members, not some of his soldiers, but to heal a lowly servant. This is a great dude. It's a really good dude. Now, one of the problems he faces, though, is Rome is the enemy. And so a centurion sends word to a rabbi. The rabbi's like, I ain't talking to you. I got nothing to do with you. And so what he does is he wisely works through the Jewish leaders of the community and sends them because they know he's a great guy. And they get to Jesus and they even say that. They say, this guy is worthy of you doing this for him. He's not some oppressive Roman with some harsh rule. No, this is a guy who built a synagogue for us at his own expense, probably used his own soldiers as the labor force and built a synagogue for that Jewish town. What a great guy. He's worthy. At least that is what the Jewish leaders say. Now, Jesus, they're, they're saying you should do this for him because he is worthy by his religious works. And that's often what how we think God operates. It's an economy of works. So we do something to impress God and then he does something for us. We are worthy by works. That's their impression here. And yet Jesus is the one that said, no, 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 you love your enemies. You know what that means? Like the Roman centurion doesn't need to prove that he's worthy. Jesus is already on the hook for loving his enemies. He loves those who are unworthy. That's Jesus' way of working. And so the centurion gets it. He knows that it's not about being nice. It's not about being worthy, but it is about the grace of Jesus. And you'll see that played out a little bit more as we continue with our story. Let's continue in verse 6. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So you see what this soldier says about himself. He says, I am not worthy. Okay, like he doesn't believe Jesus owes him anything. He doesn't send word through his friends who says, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you knew this, but I I built the synagogue, so you kind of owe me. Sometimes how we try to interact with God. But for some of us, that's really discouraging because we know, like this soldier, we know we're not worthy. And so we're really hoping that Jesus doesn't operate off a system of worthy by works, but instead off a system of grace. And that's what the centurion understands. He understands that though he is not worthy, Jesus is the kind of guy that would do it anyway. He operates out of grace. The centurion gets that. But he doesn't only get that about Jesus. He understands something else too. He understands the power of Jesus. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, but just give the command. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't even go to the house, didn't touch the servant, didn't breathe on him or blow on him, didn't do some rain dance next to him. He didn't even move. In fact, our pastor, he didn't even speak. He just moved his will and the servant was healed. You know what that means? He's not some witch doctor. He's God. He's God. I mean, how often do you hear of some miracle worker out there, some faith healer, and maybe you've got a sick relative, cancer, at death's door, and you're at your wit's end. You'll try anything. And you say, you know what? Maybe we should go see him. Maybe we should go see her. But that's the point. You've got to go. You know you've got to go. Like, you would never write a postcard. Hey, faith healer, would you please heal my relative from states away just by a move of your will? You would never do that. But that's how Jesus operates. And that's the centurion's faith. He understands the complete sovereignty, the deity of Jesus, that he's not some witch doctor, that he can move his will and heal from a distance. That means he has complete control of the created order. That's who Jesus is. Keep in mind, this is not about the centurion. This is not about the centurion's servant. Luke isn't writing so that we'd know more about the centurion. He's writing so that we'd know more about Jesus, about his authority and about his power. And I want you to keep this in mind because as we go throughout Luke, there will be other stories when Jesus touches someone to heal them. But now we know he didn't need to do that. God has visited his people, walked among us, and he can just heal with the move of his will. He's in complete control. And the centurion understands this about Jesus. Now what that means then is that the centurion understands two very important pieces of the Jesus puzzle. It is his grace and his power, both. There was a story told uh, about a philosopher in the court of Alexander the Great. And the philosopher was flat broke. And so he went to uh, the emperor and said, hey, can you give me some money? And the emperor said, you know what? I like you withdraw whatever you need from the treasury. That's okay. And so the philosopher then went to the treasurer of the empire and made a request for a very large amount, equal to about 50,000 US dollars. 
big amount. And the treasure's freaking like, there's no way the emperor's okay with this. No way. I got to go check with them. Run this off the flagpole. So he goes to the emperor and he says 50,000. And here's how Alexander the Great responded to that. He said, pay the money at once. The philosopher has done me a singular honor. By the largeness of his request, he shows that he has understood both my wealth and generosity. He understood two things about the emperor. One, that he had the power to cover that amount. And two, that he would be willing to. And that's what the centurion understands about Jesus. He understands that Jesus has the power to heal from afar. That's mind-blowing. But he also understands that Jesus has the grace to do it even for one who is unworthy. He gets both about Jesus. And that is a good summation of the centurion's faith. And because of that, Jesus, if you look in the passage, it says that he marvels at the centurion's faith. That's because everyone wants to submit to God their religious resume. Hey, look, I built a synagogue for you, God. Aren't you impressed? And that's how the Jews are viewing it. It's worthy by works, but not the centurion. The centurion gets it. That Jesus is not looking for worthy by works. He's looking for faith. And the astounding thing in this case is that he found it in a Gentile. So here's Jesus going all around Israel talking to Jews, and he doesn't find that kind of faith anywhere. He finds it in a Gentile. That's crazy. But it's a really important point that Luke is making, and here's why. The centurion was a Gentile who didn't see Jesus, but heard of him, put his faith in him, and Jesus healed in his life. Remember, Luke is writing this gospel, and it's going to go out to all the Gentiles who didn't see Jesus, but would hear of him and need to put their faith in him so that he could heal their life. And you know what's true of you and me? For the most part, we are Gentiles and we have not seen Jesus, but we've heard of him and we need to put our faith in him so that he heals in our life. That's what's going on here in the first story. But that is only the first story. And the second story comes right on its heels. And it begins in verse 11 by saying, soon afterwards. That is Luke's key that he is connecting. These are linked together. He wants us to read them together. And here's what it says. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And as his disciple, excuse me, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. All right, let me give you the map for context again. So you see, he started with a centurion servant up in Capernaum. Now he has traveled, Jesus has, along with a huge crowd, 21 miles southwest down to a little town called Nain. If you look just to the northwest of Nain, you see Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up, just five miles away. So this is kind of his old stomping grounds, right? Nain would have been just a small backwater little village, 100 people at most. I mean, just a nothing little town. And what happens then is as Jesus is entering Nain, remember Jesus has a huge crowd. 
they meet another crowd coming out. And so you, you see that in our passage, that uh, what's going on there is there's been a death. Now, back in that time, when somebody would die within a Jewish village, everything would stop. Nobody would work. Everyone would come together and surround that family. There was actually professional wailers, people who would be paid just to wail and weep. And then there would be flute players, and there would be this huge crowd, this, almost this parade, this funeral procession, carrying the body from the house, presumably where he died, and then carrying him outside the town to where they would bury him, away from the town. And, and so here is a huge crowd coming out of the town, a parade coming out. And here's Jesus coming in. It says he has crowds with him. He has this huge following. And so now they're kind of, they're button up like this. These two parades are colliding. And what is going to happen? Well, what happens is compassion. Compassion. Jesus has compassion, it says at the end there, on this woman. Why? Number one, she's a widow. Okay? We don't know how long ago her husband died, but she, she is alone. She's a widow. And now her only son has died. Now, I don't know if there's anything more devastating than a parent bearing his or her child. It's just terrible, just terrible. And, and by the way, this would be fresh grief. Like for us, when we think funerals, you're thinking like several days, maybe a week later after the death, right? Jews, particularly back in that time, they buried same day. So this is a mom whose son just died that day. Fresh, fresh grief. She's just wrecked emotionally. She's not only grieving, but she's also a woman at risk. Back in that time period, there was only one occupation available to women. Prostitution. And so the way that a, a woman would be cared for was by her husband. Oops. She's a widow. Her husband died. That's okay because her son or sons would take over the care of mom. To, uh-oh. That's her only son that just died. Now this is a woman at risk. This is a woman who has no way to take care of herself. And so what you see is, again, Luke is displaying for us Jesus, and Jesus always has a heart for the marginalized, the insignificant, those on the fringe of society. I mean, here is this woman, this widow. She is an insignificant, in their culture, an insignificant woman. She has no status in society. She's probably poor. And here comes big deal Jesus, the Messiah, that itinerant preacher who's got a whole crowd that follows him walking for 20 miles. He's a big deal. Get, and he's got an entourage. He's got a posse. Get out of the way, woman. Nope. It's not how it goes. There's no big deal Jesus here. Jesus stops and he pauses and he has compassion on this mom. It says he does, but then what he says to her, you see the last three words up there? Do not weep. Just who the heck do you think you are? Who tells a mom whose son just died to stop crying? That's weird. Just who the heck do you think you are? But you know what? Jesus knew exactly what he was about to do. Does God ever do that in your life? Where, where he says something or he does something and you are wigging out. You're, it totally dismays you. It makes no sense and it, you're just wrecked. You are upset. And, and the problem is you don't know what Jesus is about to do in your life. But he does. He does. And look how the passage 
continues then. It says, Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So if you look at the first line there, it says that Jesus grabbed a beer. I like saying it that way. Want to know what that looks like? There it is. Okay, that's actually not different word, different spelling. It actually would have looked a little bit more like this. The beer is the uh, precursor to the hearse. This would be a stretcher-like thing that they would use to carry a body out of the town, out to a cave or a tomb of some kind in order to bury him. But the important part about this is Jesus came up and touched the beer. See, according to Jewish religious rules, that would make Jesus ceremonially unclean. Lord Jesus just became unclean. Which means he was willing to be unclean for us so that we could rise from the dead. That's what's going on there. Jesus doesn't really care about safe and clean. If he did, you understand, like he would have never come. We, would, we wouldn't know what Christmas is all about, right? There would be no Christmas. And then there'd be no Black Friday, which would be a good thing, in my opinion. But that, I digress, right? But, but really, like, so if he cared about safe and clean, he would have never come to earth. But that's not his concern. His concern is to minister. And so what he does is he raises this guy back to life. And he gives him to his mother. Now look back at the passage. And my question is this, who asked Jesus to do that? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. He just did it of his own will, out of compassion. I want you to remember that this is all about Jesus. It's not about a centurion, a servant, a widow, or her son. It's all about Jesus. And he has just laid out this enormously difficult teaching, call me Lord, build your life on me. And we got to say, Jesus, who the heck do you think you are? There's an answer. He's the one who has the power over life and death. This is a biggie in the miracle scale, okay? This is at the top. He is able to raise someone back from the dead. So shocking is it that the people respond and they say a prophet has arisen among us, which means they're actually focused on the rising of Jesus, not the rising of the dead son, because Jesus is the hero of the story. It's all about who Jesus is. He's the Lord of all. Now, I don't know how much of that that this widow caught. But I want you to imagine for a second how she probably felt before those two parades collided. My husband has died. My son, my only son, is now dead. I have no prospects of how to provide for myself. I mean, there's no social security, no retirement, no life insurance. I know what's coming. Has God forgotten me? Does God love me? Does God care about me? Does God know about me? And the answer is yes. Jesus is right there 
in the midst of her pain. He's right there. You see, Jesus is walking the earth so that he can bring salvation, so he can bring resurrection from the dead for all. He wants to bring resurrection so that her dead husband can rise again, so that her son can rise, but also so that one day when she dies, so that she can rise as well. I mean, if you pay attention to our story, you understand that Jesus raised that young man off the bier temporarily, only temporarily. You understand that son would die again, right? So if this story is all that Jesus came to do, all he did was delay things for a few years. He just kicked the can down the road a little bit. That's all Jesus did there. Nothing more. And then there's no hope for her son when he dies someday. There's no hope for her dead husband. There's no hope for her when she dies someday. But Jesus didn't come just to raise one or a few people. He came to offer salvation to all of us. So what's happening here is the collide of two parades. There is a parade of death coming out of the town. There is a parade of life that is entering the town. And guess who won? And the question then is, who will win in your life? I want you to understand that you right now are on a parade of death. You are on a march toward your grave. One step after another, it is a matter of time until you die. Would you let Jesus interrupt that parade? Would you let Jesus call you from death back to life? That is exactly what he does. And that's the second story. Now, the task left to us right now is to say, okay, how do these two stories go together? Was it just two kind of random stories? No, Luke's not telling random stories. He intentionally chose these stories right after he told all the things that he said in chapter 6, all the sermon stuff, right? He intentionally goes toward these two stories. And what he's doing is answering that question, Jesus, who the heck do you think you are? And so Luke gives us these two stories. And there's two themes that I want to pull out of these stories. The first theme is this. That in both stories, we see not only the power of God, but we also see his heart. You see, Luke is showing us Jesus, but Jesus is showing us God himself. And as he does, we get to see not only the power, but also the compassion of God, the heart of God. What we're witnessing is the intersection of transcendence and imminence. Yay, Pastor Rick knows big words. <laughs> Who cares? Transcendence means that God is completely other. He is high and lifted up and infinite and so far beyond us. He is so incredibly powerful. You know what he can do? He can heal somebody from a distance without even saying a word or touching them or seeing them. He can also raise somebody from death back to life. He is so powerful, it's crazy. The transcendence of God. But not that only. The imminence. That means he draws near with compassion and grace. He is the one who would do something even for a centurion who's unworthy. He would do something for this poor widow who just lost her only son. 
It's the imminent compassion. And Jesus has both transcendence and imminence. And it's important that God has both. Let me tell you why. If God has transcendent power but lacks imminent compassion, then he'd squash us. And he's got the power to do so. Because he doesn't care about us. He has no imminent compassion. He has no grace. He just has power. We're in trouble. If he has imminent compassion, but he does not have transcendent power, then yippee skippy, God wants to help us. He loves us, but he can't help us. He has no power. We're dying and he can't save us. What we need is a God with both, with transcendent power and imminent compassion. And Jesus has both. That's the first thing that we see in both stories, the intersection of transcendence and imminence. Now, the second theme from both stories is that Jesus blows your mind. Jesus completely blows your mind. Look at this list of what we saw happen. He has concern for a Gentile servant. I'm sorry, that doesn't shock you enough. Like, you got to understand, like, For him to have compassion on a Jew, I get that. But a Gentile, no way. On a servant, no way. A Gentile servant, shut up. That's crazy. He has concern on a lowly Gentile servant. And then he is able to heal at a distance. Jesus blows your mind. Then he affirms a Gentile's faith, not a Jew's faith. Understand this. It is very, very rare in the scriptures that Jesus affirmed anyone's faith. And Luke writes down that it was a Gentile. That's crazy. Jesus blows your mind. When he affirmed that guy's faith, the whole Jewish crowd would have gasped. And then then he has compassion for the widow. He's not big deal Jesus. No, he stoops, he stops, he pauses, and he interacts with this poor woman and her dead son. And then he tells her, do not weep. (laughs) Who says that to a grieving mom? Everyone would have been shocked. Jesus blows your mind. He doesn't do what you think he would do. But he knew what he was going to do. And then he grabs a beer. And you got to know, like in that moment, every Jew would have gasped. Oh, he, he touched that? The, the Messiah, the, the teacher, the rabbi, he touched that? Jesus blows your mind. He's not concerned about being unclean. He's concerned about you. And then, of course, last but not least, he raises the dead. Listen, one of my fears is as we go through Luke, some of you have heard these stories before, and you just, you you didn't gasp. I just told you somebody walked this earth and raised somebody back to life. That's crazy. Jesus blows your mind. He absolutely blows your mind. And life overcomes death. This is shocking stuff. Imagine, if you will, that you go to a funeral and I walk in. You kind of expect I'm there to do the service. Nope. I walk up front. I open the casket and I raise the dude back to life. Be honest, I don't have that kind of game. (laughs) But if that happened, just picture that in your mind right now. Would that shock you? Would that rock you? Would that send ripples through the crowd? You can understand then why the Jews responded by saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And then they said this, God has visited his people. I just love it when people say that the New Testament doesn't actually say that Jesus is God. That's precious. 
So God has visited his people because that's the point, that there is God in the flesh. When you say, Jesus, who the heck do you think you are? God has visited his people. The one has come. That's the point. Jesus just gave a great, great sermon. But you need to understand, listen, religious teachers are a dime a dozen. I'm one of them, and there's nothing special about me. But Jesus is the one who walked the earth. God has visited his people. Jesus came, and that changes everything, absolutely everything. Jesus blew their minds. He blew their minds. When he did, he was showing both the power and the compassion of God. And the crowd responded, right? That's because that deserves a response. And it still deserves a response today. Here's my question. What are you going to do about Jesus? You say, Jesus, who the heck do you think you are? What are you going to do about Jesus? I'll give you your options. A, he is a nice Moral, religious teacher. Really good teacher. B, he's some magical witch doctor. C, he's Lord. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is God who has visited his people. And this changes everything. And when you say, Jesus, who the heck do you think you are? Your answer to that question really will impact how you respond when Jesus starts teaching. It'll impact the idea of, do you give him control of your life? Do you build your life upon him? Do you call him your Lord? Do you worship him? Do you love him? Do you serve him? Do you follow him? Do you long for his return? Jesus, just who the heck do you think you are? Luke just gave us two stories in order to answer that very question. And now you've got to answer it in your own heart. And for that, I want to pray. Bow your heads with me, if you will. Father, we come to you honestly right now. I mean, we, we love hearing Jesus' teaching. And we come out of it saying, great sermon. And yet sometimes, Father, if we're honest, we don't give him his due. We, we, we ask the question, who do you think you are? And we, we don't quite grasp exactly who he is, the one with power over life and death, the one who can heal at a distance, that he, he is God who has visited his people. And so, Father, our response to Jesus is meager and inadequate. And I want to ask that as we look in the scriptures today, as we continue to go through Luke, that you would shock us, that you would rock us, that you would allow us to to just be ho-hum about Jesus. We would understand his power. But not only his power, but his heart, as he displays your heart. That he is gracious and kind and merciful and compassionate. It's amazing to us to see that intersection within your very being displayed in Jesus. And so, Father God, would you help us to understand exactly who Jesus is so that we could respond appropriately today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, our whole lives. Thank you for sending Jesus to interrupt our parade of death that he could touch our lives and raise us back to life. 
And we pray to you and worship you in his name. Amen.